Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And if you've uh, been listening to my complaining lately about not feeling very good, well, I'm happy to report that I'm getting back up to speed and starting to feel like my old self again. I think the turning point was a conversation that I had over the weekend with Sobi, who is, uh, he's been one of the key people involved in the Planque Norte lectures at Burning Man. Uh, Actually, without Sobi and Raphael, the talks might not still be taking place. So it was really energizing to brainstorm with Sobi about some community-enriching events that we hope to pull off at this year's burn. So thank you, Sobi, for getting me back into gear, and a huge thank you to all of you who sent me Get Well emails. I want you all to know how much that meant to me. Years ago, a man I was working for said, Fatigue can make cowards out of us all. And uh, I think it was fatigue more than anything that had me thinking about dropping back to only one podcast a month. But then your uh, emails started arriving, and I have to tell you that your messages made me realize how much I would miss being with you each week here in the salon. And so I determined that no matter how I felt, I'd keep up the once-a-week pace. An interesting side note to all of this is that uh, earlier this year, my wife and I were talking about the fact that in all the email I've received from fellow saloners, there have been practically none that came from women. Uh, Been a few, but not too many. So I've been assuming that we're top-heavy on guys here in the psychedelic salon. Well, guess what? (laughs) It turns out that there are actually quite a few ladies here, and uh, that became very evident from the fact that the Get Well emails I received came from ten times more women than from men. So thanks again for writing, and thanks again for the positive energy from all of you. It uh, really makes me glad to be alive and kicking once again. Well, I'd better quit talking for now and introduce today's program, which actually includes more of my talking now that I think of it. What I'm going to play right now is a recording of a conversation that uh, John Hanna and I had last week. I think you'll find some interesting tidbits here and there, but you'll probably notice that a couple of times I kind of forgot that I was doing an interview for this podcast and just kind of started having another conversation with John and not stick to the topic at hand. Now, if you've been around the tribe for a while, you already know about John, mainly because it's almost impossible to be involved with the psychedelic community and not have benefited from his work. John Hanna is one of less than a half a dozen individuals under the age of 40 who is profiled in the Arrowwood Character Vaults. His first book in the field of altered states, The Psychedelic Resource List, was published over a decade ago and is currently in its fourth and I think last edition. Uh, We'll talk about that in in our conversation here in a minute. John's writing has been featured in Heads, High Times, Morbid Curiosity, and The Resonance Project, uh, among other places, and he's a regular and frequent contributor to the Entheogen Review. As an editor, uh, John's worked on quite a few books covering the topic of entheogens, including uh, Back from the Void by Zoe Seven, Higher Wisdom, compiled by Charlie Grobe and Roger Walsh, The Secret Chief by Myron Stoloroff, Ketamine Dreams and Realities by Carl Jansen, and, of course, my own book, uh, Speculations on the Evolution of Global Consciousness, the short title being The Spirit of the Internet. His current book editing project is uh, Tryptamine Palace by Oroch, 
a travelogue and philosophical examination inspired by a 5-MEO DMT trip. Among his other accomplishments, John also co-created three special theme issues of the Maps Bulletin, polished the zero issue of Evolver magazine, works as an associate editor of Arrowhead Extracts, and in his spare time, he's a contributing editor at DoseNation.com, which, by the way, is one of the best sites on the web. If you've been to the PsychedelicSalon.org blog, you've probably seen Dose Nation's latest headlines in the right-hand column. It's a great site, one that you really don't want to miss. And on top of everything else, John also produces the Mind States conferences, which you'll hear us talking about in just a minute if I can quit talking and just play the interview. So let's listen now to a conversation with John Hanna. Did I ever tell you how I, I first heard your name and, and found out who you were? Um, no, I don't know. I don't think you did. Because, you know, the first time we met was over in Hawaii at uh, Terrence right. McKenna's yeah, yeah. conference. But now I'd uh, I'd been to a conference that Terrence gave, and uh, a bunch of us were asking all kinds of questions. And finally he kind of got frustrated and says, you know, what you guys need to do is just go get a copy of John Hanna's psychedelic resource list. And that's the first time I, I'd heard your name. And, of course, afterwards I got all the details from Terrence and uh I think it was Loom Panics is where I first uh, found your book, but uh, I was really just blown away. I have to tell you this because back then I was uh, still in corporate America, and uh, nowadays I, you know, I've got the Psychedelic Salon podcast, and I get emails from people who are a little cautious and leery about even having an email come to me for fear I might, uh, you know, out them on a on a program or something, which of course I wouldn't do. But I was actually uh, sort of apprehensive about even buying the psychedelic resource list and having it in my possession, you know. And I thought, God, you've got a lot of guts to be out there doing that. So uh, I, I don't know if you talk about that much anymore, but I'm just kind of curious. How did you ever start that, or how did you have the, the courage to even do it? Um, yeah, okay. Well, so, you know, I guess basically it, it was sort of uh, motivated by uh, selfish uh, interest uh, in that I, I I was interested in this area, and uh, this was kind of in the the Reagan Bush dark ages, right? Uh, what oh, yeah. Jonathan Ott refers to the uh, there, there wasn't a lot of publishing, and it was kind of before the web had taken off in a big way, like 1993 or so. And uh, so I was just uh, you know I'd read High Times and other magazines, and I'd just write away to people and find out what it was that they were doing. And after a while of of writing off to various businesses that sold you know, sort of quietly sold uh, botanicals that had some type of uh, psychoactive effect, um, I started compiling them, and uh, eventually that turned into a newsletter, and um, then after, I don't know, nine issues or so, the newsletter was kind of uh, updated and produced as a book, and um, since that time, uh, every couple of years or so, I've been um, putting out new editions of it. Uh, I think I think I'm probably going to stop now. I think that the... The current edition, it's, it's, uh, it's in uh, like a 4.5 edition right now. And, um, the thing about it is that the Internet is is so easy to get information on these yeah. days. Um, and, and there's so much going on these days uh, that uh, I don't know that a print resource of that sort can be kept up to date at, 
can't really be kept as current uh, as it needs to be. But back then, uh, there was, you know, there just wasn't anything like it. So, oh, I, uh, I tell of, you, I've got, I, actually, I'm going to gonna buy a copy of this last edition then because <laughs> I've got a copy of the second I'll edition. I'll stick one in the mail to you. Oh, okay, I appreciate yeah. it. I, I think I've got about three left. I'm almost, uh, oh. I'm really almost out of print on it. So. Oh, great, because uh, I've got a copy of the second edition actually in my hands right now, and I can remember when I first got this, I was living out in the boondocks in Florida and and uh, had no connection to uh, anybody in the in the tribe, and so it was just a, a real gem to find it. And you're right, you know, a lot of this stuff is on the net now, but it was a great service when it was there, uh, as is, yeah. is another publication where I see you... Uh, Almost every public uh, issue of it, I see an article or two by you in it, and that's uh, uh, one that I've, I've pushed here, or not pushed, but talked about several times in podcasts, is the Entheogen Review. And uh, again, I heard about that one through Terrence McKenna uh, down in Palenque. He was uh, talking about it, and uh, uh, just I, I know you know what's in it, but let me just say something here for our, our listeners, because I was planning to do this a couple weeks ago about the... Uh, the actually the one that came out last winter, the winter solstice issue, has uh, uh, the cover picture and a couple other pictures of Sasha Shulgin's laboratory, and uh, I really appreciate you putting those out there. I've seen the pictures before and seen the laboratory, and that's something I think everybody ought, ought to see just from whence it came. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, it's definitely inspiring. This little tiny sort of uh, spiderweb filled uh, mad scientist kind of lab that he's got going. Uh, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, it's right out of the so, movies. <laughs> and and you know the right. current issue. Uh, I was going to tell people uh, our our uh, our a lot of our, our regulars here in the salon. There's a great uh, article by uh, Rick Strassman about uh, you know getting involved in psychedelic research, and and I get a lot of questions about that. Uh, plus all of the other articles, your uh, security issues uh, that you you bring out. Uh, the, I like the. Uh, mention of conferences, and then uh, the DMT for the masses was quite an interesting <laughs> article that uh, I was uh, desperately looking for one like that, an article like that about 10 years ago. So uh, this is just yeah, uh, it's a, quite a resource. Why don't you just say a little bit about it, uh, if you will? Sure. I, I think, um, you know, you uh, the, the article you mentioned, the DMT for the masses, um, and another article that uh, just came out in the most recent issue was uh, Mescaline for the Masses. And right. the neat thing about those uh, articles is that um, they're presenting kind of tried-and-true uh, kitchen extraction processes that people don't need to be chemists um, in order to uh, perform them. And uh, particularly the DMT for the Masses article, uh, after that came out, what I noticed, and uh, somebody actually commented on this in, in the most recent ER, uh, is that there was a much uh, larger, uh, a noticeable difference in the quantity and quality of DMT that became available in the underground. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't have any idea whether that really had any sort of an effect, but uh, uh, it's, it's certainly it's possible. Uh, it would be nice to think that these things um, have some kind of a, a real-world effect, that it's not just uh, uh, intellectual curiosity. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, so, that's, uh, that's one of the things about ER is that uh, 
it, it's such it's uh, it's such a, a broad based uh, uh, sort of a critique of information from uh, there's every issue there's some things that are way over my head as far as uh, the chemistry or botany <laughs> quite frankly but uh, you know sometimes Kate Trout will have one in there that'll be way over my head but I read it because I like trout so well <laughs> and uh, and then you come into one like I could really groove with uh, this one is uh, in theogens and video games which is really fascinating right so you know right. it, it's yeah. got something for everybody everybody in there and uh I save I've got all my back copies just because uh I'm figuring one day one of my grandkids is going to be a botanist or a chemist and can use this information. <laughs> yeah. So uh you know I think uh for me uh I I I love helping out with the R and uh it was uh in the early days it started in uh, 1992 and uh Jim DeCorn who uh published he's the author rather of uh psychedelic shamanism was the editor of it, and it was always, uh, I remember every time it came in the mail, it was always like getting this little present that I would immediately, I'd stop whatever I was doing and read it cover to cover, and uh, it was uh, much shorter back then, but, um, but, uh, so for me, in writing for it, one of the things that kind of is, inspires me is, um, to, uh, try to act as a consumer advocate, to try mm -hmm. to, uh, to point out problem areas in this scene, because, there's uh, a lot of it's kind of gray market. It's kind of an underground market, and there isn't any, um, uh, you know, there's no legal recourse that people uh, will turn to if somebody is selling something um, that's misidentified. For, you know, for example, a good example is um, uh, the, the mislabeling of botanicals, which is something that it's been going on for the last decade, these various antigens that are sold. Um, sometimes people just get it wrong. Mm -hmm. And and I don't I don't think that it's most of the time I don't think that it's uh, purposefully wrong. I don't think that people are trying to rip people off. I think that they've just purchased something from some source and it's not correctly identified and they don't know that and uh, these days um, with that happening in one wholesaler uh the whole uh, entheobotanical market can be flooded with uh, product that's that's incorrect. Right. Um, uh, a good example uh, a while ago that happened is um, uh, with uh, botanical kratom, which is uh, Mitragyna speciosa, and this is a, a leaf uh, that grows in Thailand. It's actually uh, illegal in Thailand, but it uh, produces kind of an opiate-like effect. And it's it's an interesting it's interesting that it produces that effect because uh, the purported active chemical in it is um, is a tryptamine actually so but it's a, and, and it's a, like it's similar sort of structurally similar to psilocybin so it's one of these um, and yet it, or, it, it acts like an opiate of some kind yeah it produces huh. a kind of a like a valium sort of wow. effect hmm. um, but so. It wasn't that available on the commercial market, and then all of a sudden the commercial market was flooded with it. And uh, Daniel Siebert uh, contacted me, and he pointed out that the stuff that was available on the market um, didn't look like Kratom. Like it, morphologically, it wasn't right. When you looked at the leaves, they they had uh, characteristics that weren't similar to what Kratom should look like. Um, so uh, with that. You know, sort of uh, as my starting point, I contacted uh, Sasha Shulgin and I asked him if he 
uh, happen to know any source for reference standard for mitrogynin, um, which is the target alkaloid uh, in in Kratom. And he pointed me to a company called uh, Appen Chemicals in England. Um, and so I ordered some from them. And then uh, at the same time, I I heard that Dennis McKenna might have some mitrogynin from from years ago, and I contacted him. Um, maybe a little bit earlier than that or something, and, and he passed some along to me. So uh, ultimately I got a couple of, of reference standards to use and uh, then had uh, assorted folks who were able to perform uh, thin-layer chromatography and uh, high-performance liquid chromatography on a number of different samples of this Kratom that had flooded the market, or I should say purported Kratom that had flooded the market. And what we were able to show was that uh, not only was the leaf morphologically incorrect, but it was also chemically incorrect. It, it didn't contain any mitrogynin. So, so this is a, a perfect example of kind of this this situation where something is is misidentified and then it's being sold in a lot of different venues. And so I wrote about our findings um, in an article for the Antigen Reviews called uh, I think it's called uh, Bogus Gratam Market Exposed. Um, and that that article can be downloaded downloaded from. Uh, from the ER website, which is uh, uh, www.entheogenreview.com. But in any case, Daniel's really the person to to thank for catching that scam or for drawing it to my attention. And uh, a couple of years later, he he similarly discovered uh, that there were some bogus uh, Lagachylans and Ebrians uh, being sold online. Um, but uh, unfortunately, at that time, I didn't really have uh, enough time to write about the situation myself and and I don't think that Daniel really ever had the time to write it up either. But it just goes to show these these situations where people are selling some herb or some seed or some cactus that's misidentified. Uh, there isn't really any uh, sort of government system to catch this. The government doesn't give a rat's ass. They'd rather that people weren't, you know, purchasing these things in the first place, right? So that's that's really probably uh, as far as the my work with uh, the antigen review goes. That's probably what compels me the most in my writing is is this goal of being able to uh, help people out and to be as truthful as possible. And but, you know, I don't, I don't know if you, you know this, but uh, from time to time people have called you, sir, the, the Ralph Nader of the drug scenes. <laughs> I don't know if you're Ralph Nader on drugs or not. but, <laughs> but Ralph Nader on drugs. That sounds, that sounds actually kind of scary. I don't. I think if Ralph Nader was on drugs, I'd rather have him on some sort of depressants than yeah, stimulants. Perhaps. I agree. Um, but but not, I, don't, I don't want to trash Ralph Nader. I think he's great. I, he's, you know, yeah. uh, he's definitely a hero of mine so that's good to hear <laughs> you know what's what's amazing is you know you're a hero of mine look at all the work that you go to and i, I might point out that you know you don't like get paid a living to write these articles this is, <laughs> this is all uh, right. community service for uh sure it's definitely a labor of love or uh or a, a felt duty um you know that, that i feel if there's some situation that i feel like people really need to know about um then i feel that i, that I have to write about it well, like in the latest issue, you've written about something that's uh, near and dear to both our hearts, and that's security issues in the underground. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about this a lot at uh, Burning Man. In fact, uh, your your Halpern Gate article, a series of them, uh, was uh, really, I think, uh, something very important that I've, I've never really talked about here uh, on these programs uh, so far. But I, I think it's something that is uh, 
important in particular because uh, you know a lot of people now are connecting with each other on the net, not really knowing each other and uh, or knowing one another well. And uh, you've got to be still careful about all this stuff because you know uh, free speech is uh, uh, fortunately still somewhat legal in this country, but. Uh, some of the other activities here and uh, certainly uh, uh, are, would be considered an outlaw. And so uh, uh, when you get a, uh, someone in the crowd who's a snitch, uh, you know, I, I've been involved in a similar situation myself uh, back in my years in Dallas. And uh, it's very serious. And so I, I do appreciate what you did about Halpern Gate. But we might want to say a, a word or two about it here because I don't know if uh, uh, particularly our people outside the country, our listeners, uh, know much about it. Sure. I, I just wanted to, before uh, touching on that um, situation, you, you brought up something that made me think uh, of a recent situation, uh, which is the, the idea of free speech in this country and that we still have free speech. And, um, you know, that may be the case for Americans. Um, I don't know if you recently heard about this uh, Canadian who was trying to cross the border. And um, many years ago, 20 years ago or something, he had uh, written about his illegal use of LSD. Um, and he, uh, or he had, I'm sorry, many years ago he had illegally taken LSD. Um, and then fairly recently he wrote an article for a psychology magazine, right? He's a, he's a psychologist right. or a psychotherapist of some type. And so when he was trying to cross the border into the United States uh, to visit his kids um, who live in the United States, uh, they stopped him at the border and Googled his name. They found this article, the customs officials found this article that he had written, which mentioned his illegal use of LSD a couple decades ago, and, and now they won't let him into the country. They, they basically they said, no, you're an undesirable, you've, you've admitted to doing something illegal, we're not going to. So, so if you're Canadian and you want to come to the United States, you might not want to write about your drug experiences. Well, yeah, and, and uh, on top of that, you know, he's got two children living in this country. Uh, one, I think, is a university professor, another is a medical doctor, and he's a very respectable guy. And, uh, and then right, it's, what's right. so frightening is this, this bureaucrat, little border guard that uh, – just takes it on his or her own to Google him, you know, and and makes that decision just unilaterally. It's uh, uh, it's and, and then more disturbing than that, uh, perhaps, is is where where does the future lie? Where when is it going to be that as an American citizen who's traveling and then trying to get back in the country uh, that uh, that they decide, well, uh, you know. Look, if we won't let, let in the foreign undesirables, you know, uh, I mean, they wouldn't let a foreign terrorist in, right? And they wouldn't let a domestic terrorist in, right? If you were a known domestic terrorist, they're not going to let you back in. They're going to arrest you or do whatever. So when is it going to be a situation where they just don't let American citizens back into the country anymore? That's an excellent um, question and one that I'm somewhat uh, concerned about. <laughs> sure. I mean, I travel a lot, so I don't, you know, uh, and, and I've got writings on the web. Um, of course, I never do anything illegal. Wouldn't do that. You know, but uh, that's why we go out of the out of the country is to <laughs> do things in another right. jurisdiction. Right. Right. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it's just amazing, and uh, you know that uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons that keeps compelling me to do these programs is that we we have to continue to stand up and be counted. You know, it's uh, we just can't be quiet, and we have to keep talking about it. And and uh, you know, uh, actually, that story about that uh, psychiatrist is. Uh, on our blog at uh, psychedelicsalon.org, uh, where I blog the uh, program notes here for this program, but also put up stories like that. And then uh, also uh, over on the left-hand column is uh, all of the latest headlines from Dose Nation, where I think you also write over there at Dose Nation, don't you? 
Uh, I wish, yeah, I, I do. They've got me on as a as a uh, sort of a guest editor, and I wish that I was able to get to that more often. But they're doing an amazing job there. I mean, it's just updated constantly. There's all essentially uh, with a focus on on psychoactive drugs. Um, just all the news that happens is posted to that website. It's an incredible resource for people. So uh, yeah, definitely check yeah, out. Oh, it's uh, it's really it's, yeah, it's a great site, and uh, that's why. Uh, we, we're listing the, I think, the top 15 headlines from it, and they're constantly updated in automatic feed. So it's, uh, I go there for my information. Actually, uh, a lot of it's so easy to find there. So uh, I, I wanted to get back to the, the you had mentioned the Halpern Gate article. Yeah, I, yeah. So I wanted to just briefly. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because um, I feel like I've spent enough time, <laughs> you know, in my life on this on this subject. And uh, uh, writing the article was sort of really troubling for me on on very many levels um and uh, but not writing it would have been more troubling right so uh, i i sincerely believe that it's it's really crucially important for anyone who's interested in psychedelics in any way uh to read my uh, article it's titled halpern gate um and it's and it's posted to the antigen review website and then there's uh, another article um from john beardsford it's uh titled halpern gate 2 um i don't think that's online yet anywhere um, but it's in the antigen review. And then uh, Eric Davis wrote an article uh, which was titled The Bad Shaman Meets the Wayward Doc, um, and that's posted up at tripsine.com. And um, the, the, the basic John, story... John, what I'll, I'll do, John, uh, just so our listeners will know, is I'll, I'll uh, put links to all of those articles uh, with the program notes to this, uh, this oh, great. program. So they can look through. And then... Uh, We'll, we'll have to uh, contact uh, uh, ER to see if we can get uh, permission to put the Halpern Gate 2 article up, and I could even put that on my site and link to it. So uh, they should yeah, all I'm be sure up there. I mean, it's, it's something, something that should yeah. be read, uh, really should be read. So, so the basic story is that um, that this this uh, doctor John Halpern, who works at uh, McLean Hospital in in Harvard, and he's been uh, doing research into psychedelics, and he was funded um, for many years by the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Um, uh, so the, the trouble is, is that um, he uh, acted as a DEA snitch uh, in the uh, LSD missile silo bust that happened in the year 2000, right? And a lot of people didn't know that this was the case. Um, and, you know, because Rick Doblin was friends with him and uh, Rick is the, the founder of uh, MAPS, the Multidisciplinary Association, for psychedelic studies, because he was friends with John, um, because he believed in uh, the research that John was doing, and he was, he was funding that research, um, he sort of kind of kept it quiet. He didn't go out of his way to make it known that Halpern had been a snitch. Well, you know, the trouble is, is that Halpern is frequently involved in underground activities. He worked at the, um, the crisis tent at Burning Man, he goes to conferences geared towards uh, underground enthusiasts, and there is, I think, reasonable concern um, that some people have that he, if he's not still working for the DEA in some capacity, that uh, since he snitched once in the past, if he was pressured to, he would snitch again in the future. So, uh, you know, I think it's important for people to know about this situation, and it and it brings 
um, even if you're just looking at it and projecting, what is it that I would do? What would I do if I was put between a rock and a hard place? Would I roll over uh, on my friends? And so people need to consider that sort of thing, and they need to consider how to stay safe and the kinds of things that they want to say and not say um, in public. And uh, I think that, you know, probably it's prudent to avoid people who are known DEA snitches. You know, I'm in 100% agreement with you, and uh, as I say, I've had some experience with this in the past, and uh, and let's let's just say let's Im- impute nothing but the best of future intentions and motives to anybody that rolls over. Uh, no matter how good their intentions, it's one area in my life where I refuse to give anyone a second chance. Just period. Because, like you, I've I've had to sit down in my heart of hearts and say, okay, am I am I willing to just uh, you know. Uh, pay for all this without uh, rolling over and unless you're willing to take those uh, uh, kind of a stands then then you need to uh, consider where you are and what you're doing because uh, uh, this is this is no laughing matter when a man gets two consecutive life sentences you know and uh, how right. how how can you even uh, look yourself in the mirror when you've contributed to something like that is my you know I, 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 I think know. it's you know it's the it's the was it Beretta if you can't do the time don't do the crime <laughs> yeah right? yeah <laughs> I mean I think that you, you know you people need to consider that and and kind of the golden rule in our community is thou thou shalt not snitch right I mean that's the that's the glue the trust that holds us all together as a community so it's a pretty serious thing and uh, I think that you know pe- people need to look at that they need to see what's going on with that situation uh, I want I want to say I was I was happy to uh, see that uh, Rick Doblin um, actually uh, spoke about this at Burning Man and at NPM Village that um, the Palenque Norte lectures that you organized that you uh, allowed for this topic to be discussed. I, I sort of felt as though the manner in which the opinions about the situation were presented was still largely sculpted in advance by Rick to his benefit. Um, and I also kind of feel that the gravity of the situation probably went over many of the listeners' heads who were uh, a little bit spun out there on the playa, but I was still glad to see that Rick finally addressed the topic in public, and, and so uh, that that's good and, and admirable. And, um, you know, Rick's doing a lot of good work. Um, I, don't, I don't think that this situation should in any way define him or that people should uh, hold this against him forever. Um, and, you know, they, folks need to look at the big picture and see that, uh, that that Rick is doing a lot of good work, although I think he made a mistake in this situation of supporting John Halpern. Yeah, and, and you know, Rick and I go back to uh, uh, early 1986, and we've, <laughs> we've been uh, uh, okay. off and on together for a long time, and so... Uh, uh, you know, it, it, I'm very disappointed that that he has uh, taken this stand myself, and you know, it wasn't easy to get him to commit to do this. Quite frankly, last summer, and it didn't come out the way I wanted it to either. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I thought it was kind of interesting the way he sort of finessed the uh, people coming up there with him. But uh, in any yeah, event, the, the best example of that to me was uh, Nick Sand, right? <laughs> I who, know. Who I know Nick is a good friend cried. of mine. Oh. And, and uh, and Nick really had some very strong feelings about the topic of snitching, right? Because he was put away because twice, he snitched. twice, two different uh, right, snitches. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was really unfortunate to to see how tame Nick was when he was up there uh, uh, talking about this in in public. I felt like uh, you know I I know the way Rick the way that uh, Nick really feels, and and so it kind of felt a little bit like you know Rick had finessed. 
uh, what uh, Nick said. Well, yeah, it, it was just uh, it, it was very unfortunate the way it was done. But I have to take my hat off to Nick. He was just a gentleman. Oh he yeah, just you yep. know, he he yep. could have done a lot of things there, but he he was really the man of the hour. And and uh, you know, you could you well, no, tell. I'll tell you, the man of the hour was a woman. The man of the hour was Usha. <laughs> Usha. Uh, Nick she Lush, did. <laughs> who, who she didn't mince any words, and she got up after Nick spoke, and she she laid it out the yeah. way that I thought Nick was going to lay it out. So really, Usha, uh, you know, hats off to her. Hey, you know, that. I I didn't get a recording of the thing. Did your video come out of that at all? Yeah. Yeah, we, sure. We uh, I just need to, to strip the audio. Here. Yeah, and I'll, I'll podcast that. That's that's something we will let the whole community hear and uh, uh, let them. Let yeah, them we could. Uh, you know, themselves. we could even get it posted up to YouTube, probably. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so anyhow, we need to move on. Uh, probably let's let's uh, move on to more pleasant things. And, uh, and sure. Uh, yes. So uh, yeah, let's move on to uh, uh, sunnier climbs and uh, talk about about uh, what what is your your current obsession? I mean, you've been into this field for for decades now, and so what's your your focus on on uh, all of these different uh, uh, areas of interest these days? Well, okay, um, I guess it's not particularly psychedelic in any way, but. Um, uh, I've been thinking about writing a book on it. Certainly, uh, probably I'll at least get around to writing an article on it. Um, and I've, I've been kind of intrigued over the last few years with the uh, energy drink phenomenon and how that's impacted the, uh, the marketing of soda and uh, what's going on with that. And so, you know, I, I remember when I first tasted Red Bull, now a lot of people don't like the flavor of Red Bull. You know, and, I've ne- I've never uh, even tried it. I've, it the name yeah. kind of put me off. It sounds like malt liquor or something. <laughs> well, so it's uh it's interesting the uh um the name Red Bull uh when it when it first came out it it has a, a taurine in it, right, which is this amino amino acid um and you know, I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that later but um the uh, urban legend that was passed around, one of the natural sources for taurine is uh, bull semen or bull <laughs> testicles, right? And so so the name Red Bull, people were thinking, oh, God, this stuff's got bull testicles in it, right? Uh, <laughs> but it doesn't. I mean, the taurine is all completely synthetic, but that, you know... It's, no it's no bulls of, were harmed in the process right, of making so, it. Right, right. Good. So... Anyway, it's a, it's it's kind of you know it's it's a it's a different taste. And before energy drinks came along, uh, I, I really wasn't a big soda drinker. Um, it's kind of like the palate within the realm of soda wars is pretty limited. Uh, for most of my life, it's like you've, you've got cola and lemon lime, right? And those are the two biggies. It's it's, it's either Coke or Pepsi or Seven Up or Sprite. You know that's pretty much the dominant market. And then. And then there's the you know the also rands like Dr Pepper or Mr Pibb uh, or root beer and orange soda, but that's about it. Aside from diet versions of those, which do taste a little different, but that's not what people are looking for, right? It's kind of this really sort of limited palette of sodas, um, and the European market isn't like that. There's a number of different flavors um, and have been for years. But um, well, okay, so let me back up. I guess probably the the first energy drink on the market was Jolt Cola. Oh, I remember um, that. I remember that. Yeah. And it came it came out in 1985, and the 
the slogan was something like all the sugar and twice the caffeine, right? <laughs> um, now they had to dump that slogan later because uh, they started using high, high fructose uh, corn syrup as their sweetener instead of sugar, so it didn't have any sugar anymore. But, <laughs> but the point was that they they gave it a you know a double dose of of uh, caffeine twice as much as a regular uh, cola. Um, but that wasn't really an energy drink in the same you know way that what we think of today as energy drinks. We have they have a lot of assorted in- ingredients in them and uh, a lot of B vitamins in them. And so uh, I, I you know I should mention that Red Bull actually uh, predated uh, Jolt Cola. There were a number of oh, really? versions around. Huh. Um, it's I think it was uh, created in Thailand, and there were uh, I don't I'm not sure exactly when it first appeared, but what happened is a company in uh, Austria um, saw the, the product from Thailand and they kind of reinvented it. Um, they they named it, they changed the name to Red Bull and they carbonated it and they put it in these little tiny cans and so that hit the world market in in uh, I think around 1987 and uh, that's what sort of was the to me what I see as the defining feature in changing the soda market. So. So when I first tasted Red Bull, what I was surprised by is it's got kind of these several layers of flavor. It, it, when you take a sip, it hits you with one flavor, and then that kind of mellows out into another flavor, and then there's sort of like this third flavor that's an aftertaste, and as you continue to drink it, it there's kind of like this little weird roller coaster effect of flavors that you're, that you're having. And, um, are, are you a stockholder in this forth. company? I'm, I'm ready to go out and I, buy one I am, now. <laughs> I am not, but, uh, but I, I wish I had been, sure. So, uh, so it's, it's interesting you mentioned that because um, it was it was considered from the outset uh, that this product was like the um, there's some I think there's a an article titled Speed McCann which you can find online and it and it traces the history of the marketing of Red Bull and it was it was like they took it to focus groups and it was considered to be um, just like the absolute worst product that you could possibly pitch, right? Uh, people didn't like the flavor. It's in this little tiny can. They didn't understand why it was so expensive. Um, so, you know, it, uh, but, you know, now it's huge. It's, it's got the market share in, in uh, energy drinks. Um, I, I, don't, I don't really remember when I first tried Red Bull, but uh, in the early 1990s, uh, I used to run a smart bar business at Ray's mm. and, um, you know, sell smart drinks and the the business was called Think Again. Uh, <laughs> I like right? that. <laughs> and so the, the catchphrase was "Smart drugs for stupid people." <laughs> so you know, hopefully I wasn't insulting my clients too much, but most people didn't read anything anyhow. And I, I've never really been quite sure how much of the effect of any number of uh, the sort of quote unquote smart drugs is is a pharmacological effect, and how much of it is a placebo effect. Well, you right? know, back back when uh, that book. Smart Drugs and Nutrients uh, first came out. You know, I, I bought the book and ordered some of the stuff from overseas and all. And, uh, I, you know, I don't know how much was placebo, but uh, I, I uh, don't think any of it hurt me, at least. How's that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's, they're, they're pretty benign. Uh, the, the drugs and nutrients that are sort of being pimped as, as uh, increasing your brain power, they're pretty benign in any case. So, uh, so I was running the Smart Bar, and um, most of my products were based on 
these commercially available vitamin nutrient blend powders that you mix up in in uh, in the drinks that were being uh, produced or or marketed by the life extension gurus um, Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw, right? So so this is back in the days of Reality Hackers magazine and and the early Mondo 2000 uh, magazine and. Well, I, um, I'll tell you I, what, if it wasn't for Mondo 2000, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation. That uh, <laughs> That's where I first heard about Terrence McKenna. And uh, I, uh, interesting, yeah, I, God, I was going to say, interestingly, you, you put me on a panel sitting next to Are You Serious at uh, one of the Mind States conferences. And so I was able to tell him that, uh, you know, I was uh, there only because he'd put me there with his magazine. That was a great <laughs> publication. I think that uh, Are You Serious was the editor of both of those, uh, Reality Hackers and, and Mondo 2000, and, and before that, the incarnation was called High Frontiers for a couple issues. And, and I, I need to say that uh, Are You Serious was just totally before his time with these publications, and if, if you look through them, even today, if you read through these back issues that are like almost two decades old uh, in some cases, um, they still hold up. The information still holds up. You'll see the stuff that they were talking about 20 years ago that's being talked about today. And, uh, you know, I mean, he re- really, he did a great job with those publications. And it's, I can, kind of I can uh, verify that they hold up that uh, of the few things that I have in the way of possessions, because uh, I don't like carting things around, is I've got the complete uh, set of Mondo 2000. Ah, the, the uh, you the, dog. The, I'm missing the first uh, three, two issues uh, of it. Well, I bought the uh, Xerox copies of the first two issues when they were selling uh, well, uh, maybe I have to get a copy of your copy. Sure. Yeah, it's funny. It. The, the, uh, the, the, the content holds up, but when you look through those early issues and you see the advertisements, they're sort of quaintly dated. There's a, like a Time Wave Zero version 2.0 is offered on a five-and-a-half-inch floppy diskette, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, we're not here well, to talk anyway, about Well, anyway, I want to get back to this, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, the, the whole uh, – my – my obsession with energy drinks. So, um, so it's back in the early 1990s, and uh, Dirk Pearson and Sandy Shaw had these products, and they kind of predicted that uh, the 1990s were going to be the decade of functional beverages, and they offered products that had a number of different vitamins, and um, then it kind of they had three sort of flavors of effect. There was the stimulant product um, that they had the amino acid uh, phenylalanine in, and then they had kind of a, a relaxant product, which I think was called Serene or something like this, um, which contained tryptophan in it, um, which is like a precursor to serotonin production. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they had one for mental stimulation that had choline in it. Uh, I think they might have had another one that was a diet one that had ephedra in it. But um, uh, it's unfortunate their prediction of, of it being kind of like the decade of functional beverages never really reached its full expression. And what we've got today in the energy drink market is is uh, kind of a less sophisticated uh, product that's primarily, you know, jacked up with a high dose of caffeine. Um, it's got a bunch of B vitamins in it, which I think are probably pretty good for stress. Um, and and then uh, most of them have a, a healthy do- dose of uh, taurine, which I mentioned earlier that you know that comes from uh, bull testicles or bull semen or something. <laughs> Doesn't really, but. Uh, but but it's interesting that uh, Pearson and Shaw, uh, I don't think that their early products had taurine in it, but they pointed out how um, taurine can actually be beneficial for people who take stimulants like uh, cocaine or methamphetamine and possibly caffeine also uh, because it prevents uh, an excessive sensitivity to noradrenaline, hmm. which is something that's released when you're taking stimulants. So it's it's kind of a, you know, it's an interesting kind of like 
Um, we're going to give you the caffeine, and then we're going to give you something that helps you with the caffeine, you know, all in the same <laughs> bottle. So, so Red Bull uh, had this their early approach to marketing um, because people, some people weren't so sure about the flavor of their product. Was that they just gave away cases and cases and cases of Red Bull? They went to big parties, they went to raves, and they just handed it out for free. Um, and uh, so, you know, people got kind of interested in it, and and it did provide a little bit of a buzz because it had, you know, I think it had about the. It had about three times as much caffeine as a normal soda, right? Mm. It was about as much caffeine as a as a cup of coffee, I guess. Um, but but they started in Austria and then they tried to market it in Germany, and uh, because it contained taurine, um, and the Germans are like, "What the hell is this stuff that's in here?" Um, it took like about five years before they could get the sales approved in Germany, um, and that that was its uh, second big market was the German market, but. Um, I think it's interesting to point out that uh, just because of what Red Bull contains, it's the caffeine that it contains and the taurine, and um, there's something, I'm going to butch the pronunciation, but I've got a can here, so I'll read it from it. Um, it I think it's gluco, uh, glucuronolactone, glucuronolactone, <laughs> right? I, I don't know what that is or what it does. But you, um, but but, you just got through drinking some, huh? <laughs> Right. Oh yeah. 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 Got to keep a can handy. I don't know what so, it is, but I've got it. <laughs> it's it's good for you. So you know, one of the reasons that I started looking into uh, energy drinks or became interested in them was because so many of them contain so many different ingredients, and and what the hell are they, and what do they do, and why are they in there? Um, and sometimes I don't have any answers, um, or I just haven't looked into it enough yet. But um, there's you know there's places will restrict the sale of Red Bull. There's a, a particular grocery store in England, I forget the name, but they won't sell cans of Red Bull to anyone who's uh, under 13 years old. Hmm. Um, and in, in Finland, uh, if you're under 18, you can only buy one can at a time. They're not going to sell you two cans unless you show them an ID, right? <laughs> so it's it's kind of, to me, it's kind of but surprising it, that Red but Bull... But it's not, not like even a cup of coffee, right, as far as caffeine? It's about the same as a caffeine as a cup of coffee, right? Yeah, it's just a little bit less, maybe. <laughs> but but it's but it's like three times as much as a normal soda. Mm-hmm. So and when you think about how uh, um, how much soda kids drink, you know, <laughs> kids can go through a six pack in an afternoon of soda without any problem. I was you just know, thinking about in in Finland, a kid uh, under eighteen can no doubt have a cup of coffee. But uh, uh, this, this <laughs> well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. So this yeah. has some so, freaks yeah, for some reason. Uh, the rule, the restrictions and rules are absurd uh, on this kind of thing. I think it's just so. So, but to me, what's surprising about Red Bull is that it caught on in America um, because we're, uh, you know, America is all about more is better. Right? <laughs> I mean, this is the land of the, the big gulp and the bigger gulp and the mega colossal gulp and you know these giant buckets of soda that they sell you at Seven Eleven or or assorted stores. Um, and, and so here with Red Bull, there's this tiny, tiny can that's got like a few swallows in it and, and it costs as much as a six pack of regular soda. (laughs) But I think that what happened is people bought into the mystique about it. They bought into the marketing aspect of it. And there's a whole bunch of young urban professionals that are ready to drop four bucks on a latte. And so Red Bull's actually a cheaper alternative to a latte and, and it's also got vitamins in it. So, you know, that seems like it's good for you. Yeah, win-win situation so, there. 
so Red Bull uh, kind of like, you know, it ushered in the new era of, of uh, these energy drinks. And then, you know, eventually now we've got a market that's been flooded with knockoffs. Um, I wanted to make a point uh, about my own consumption of these products. I, at a certain point, uh, I realized that I had like a, a $6.57 a day habit. You know, and I don't have a lot of money, and that seemed like more money than I should be spending on soda. That was two Red Bulls and a, and a rock star from, from my, the grocery store that's just down the street from me that I walked to. And so I decided, okay, I, I got to cut this out. I'm going to stop. I'm not going to drink these anymore. And so I stopped drinking them cold turkey. And, you know, I'm lucky I'm not one of those people that gets headaches when I don't have caffeine, but I know a lot of people do. Um, so, so I quit. And after a couple of weeks, I noticed I had, I had just fallen into this horrible depression. I just seemed like I was depressed all the time. And, and there were some depressing things in my life at that point. So I can't, you know, blame it completely on the fact that I wasn't drinking my soda. But, uh, then I, I decided, you know, this just sucks, and so I started drinking the soda again, and the depression immediately lifted. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if it's the B vitamins, I don't know if I'm a caffeine junkie, um, and you know, it was just one. Uh, you can't can't take too much stock in one anecdotal report like that. So, but these days I try to sample any new product, uh, any new energy drinks that I come across, and you frequently find them in truck stops and places like that, and I've. I've sure that I've tried over 50 of them now because at some point I started saving the cans um, and I'm sure I've got at least 50 cans uh, you know, out there in a bucket. Um, that, now, does, so some does of these, any of them beat Red Bull or are they uh, all just knockoffs of the original in there? Well, um, so, you know, it, it depends. By beat, it depends what you mean. Um, I like the flavor of Red Bull. Some people don't. Uh, some of the new products have flavors that are just disgustingly vile, right? They, they sort of taste like um, concentrated geriatric sweat that you lick <laughs> from the wrinkled skin of an old man's butt crack. Well, since right? I've never done it's, that, I don't quite have that taste in mind, but I don't okay, want to get it. No, right. I don't want to get it. Sure. It's, they're not good. Trust <laughs> me, they're not good. They're... they're, they're uh, they taste like vitamins, right? They basically just taste like if you crushed up a bunch of vitamins and threw them in water, uh, there's, you know, they just taste bad. But what about and, a stimulant uh, effect or a buzz? Do uh, any of them give a better buzz than uh, Red Bull? Well, so um, it's, they, it's kind of hard. To, I, haven't, I haven't done any kind of across-the-board comparison. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the products... Uh, a lot of the products contain uh, different kind of signature ingredients, right? So it's not just caffeine, but some of them will contain like horny goat weed. Some of them will contain milk thistle extract. Some of them will contain ginseng. You know, there's a, a number of different products. I wanted to, um, I wanted to just read uh, a bit of a label here from a product that is called Liquid Speed. Uh, this is a 9.5 fluid ounce bottle, and uh, you know, the, the taglines on it, uh, explosive energy, fat burner, mental focus, awesome taste. Okay. And it's the tropical ice flavor. So, um, this is just in one of the ones that I tried and, and I pulled it off the shelf and I, I drank, uh, one sip of it and it was just so horrible that I couldn't drink anymore. Right. <laughs> and what I found is it kind of an interesting thing. Frequently, the ones that I think taste really, really bad and I can't stand them. Mm-hmm. My wife will drink those and she thinks they taste good. 
So, I, and that seems to be kind of a consistent phenomenon, which is is weird to me, but it shows how much people's individual taste varies. Uh, because, you know, these, a lot of these products, I think, how could this have possibly passed the R&D department, right? How could it be on the shelf? No one's ever going to want to drink more than one. So, so liquid speed uh, here, it's under recommended use, it says, as an adult dietary supplement, initially drink one half bottle of liquid speed to determine tolerance. Do not exceed more than one bottle in a four-hour period or more than two bottles daily. Um, for best results, use as a part of a reduced fat diet and exercise program. Do not consume on an empty stomach. All right, so, so now I want to, so, and, and it's got a bunch of different vitamins in it, and then its proprietary blend contains uh, caffeine and glucurano, no lactate, lactone rather, and uh, NAC, taurine, uh, L-tyrosine, L-phenylalanine, uh, something called Googleosterone E and Z, no idea what that is, green tea, uh, evodamine, and bladder rack. Um, some of those are, are maybe your appetite suppressants. But, um, but what I want to read on this is the warning. Not all energy drinks have warnings, although increasingly um, people are, are marketing them with uh, some type of a little warning on it. So this says, warning, not intended for persons under 18 years of age. Do not use if pregnant or nursing. Consult a, consult a physician or a licensed qualified healthcare professional before using this product if you have been treated for or diagnosed with or have a family history of any medical condition, including but not limited to high blood pressure, recurrent headache, cardiac arrhythmia, heart, liver, kidney, or psychiatric disease, stroke, angina, diabetes, asthma, nervousness, anxiety, depression, or other psychi psychiatric condition, glaucoma, difficulty urinating, prostate enlargement, seizure disorder, peptic ulcers, or if you're using any prescription or over-the-counter drugs, or if you're sensitive to the effects of caffeine, do not use if you're using a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, or any other dietary supplement, and or over-the-counter drug containing ephedrine, caffeine, pseudoephedrine, or phenylpropylalanine. Uh, ingredients found in certain decongestant, allergy, asthma, cold and cough, and weight control products, or any other ephedrine group alkaloid, or if ingredients that have, uh, or uh, the, uh, or other ingredients that have a known stimulant effect, do not exceed recommended serving. Individuals who exceed the recommended serving or consume caffeine with this product may experience. Uh, serious adverse health effects. Stop use and call a physician or licensed qualified healthcare professional immediately if you experience rapid heartbeat, nausea, insomnia, diarrhea, severe headache, shortness of breath, uh, or other similar symptoms. Uh, keep out of the reach of children. Like, Have you all this is actually on. Are you making no, no, this, no, this is a real no, warning on a can? It's all on the side of this, this container for this for this <laughs> beverage, right? So, <laughs> so I mean, it, it's it's hilarious. Um, it's and uh, and so I didn't I didn't drink any more of it. I didn't like the way it tasted. So, but my wife drank kind of the remaining amount of what would have been half a dose, and she felt a, a little bit weird after uh, after consuming it. Like she just felt a little off and kind of. So the next day she drank the other half of the dose, and she she just felt kind of sick, you know, and so, I mean, I can't necessarily tie that to this beverage, but I thought, uh, it's hilarious, you can't even drink half a bottle of this thing um, without uh, getting 
you know, feeling and, ill. And you know um, what's really a, a, a amazing, and I kind of like to get into a, a quick discussion of this because we're, we're kind of running out of time, but, uh, you know, here that huge warning and, and that's that's horrible that that doesn't sound like anything you should put in your body but that's legal to sell in a store and then medical marijuana the federal government is still against <laughs> you know with no right. warnings on the right. label you know now now isn't there there's something you you told me about uh, about uh, you can't call these energy drinks uh, something illegal or or uh, how is that uh, Oh right right so so that's a you know that's a good um that's a good, that's a good story. A recent um, product. There's uh, recently there's this product that's available um, on the market um, called cocaine, right? <laughs> I've um, heard of it. And <laughs> right, uh, no, no, not that. Uh, it's an energy drink that they called cocaine, and you know I think it's kind of a little bit of marketing genius as far as the uh, you know the noise, the the outrage that's generated from uh, marketing a product that's called cocaine, but. Um, a few years back, uh, I think it was, I don't know, maybe in, uh, in the year 2000, the FDA published, published this notice um, that any dietary supplement that's marketed or distributed or manufactured as a legal alternative to an illicit street drug uh, would be considered illegal. Okay, so think about this for a minute. Let's say that I come home at the end of the day and I want to unwind and I use the pop of Quaalude, right, mm-hmm. at the end of the day. But then the DEA makes quaaludes illegal. Okay, so now some company is producing a dietary supplement that contains completely legal ingredients, which claims to relax me in the same manner that quaaludes used to. Uh, and I want to be relaxed, and I don't want to break any laws. So I might like to purchase this new product, but I'm not able to because the FDA has said that if you make a comparison to an illegal product, that for that reason alone, the product is now illegal. So... If there's a pill, for example, that contains Kava Kava, right, and somebody calls it Quasi-Ludes or Interlude or, or makes up some, you know, name that references Ludes, that product would be illegal. But the exact same pill sold under the name Kava Bliss, right, or something like that, is not illegal. So, so what the FDA is trying to ban is the idea of the illegal drugs. It has nothing to do with any actual real-world health concerns about the product or what's in it. The the government just doesn't want people thinking that they can get high. You know, John, this so, is just totally amazing that, you know, it's this is sort of like the marketing uh, uh, analog to the analog drug law that says, you know, any drug right. that's similar to it. Right. And now this is the marketing end of the thing. You can You can market this product as long as you don't call it something or make a claim that it could get you high you know that's it's just right. uh, beyond belief and, and it's not and it's not even well okay so anyhow so how this relates to the energy drink phenomenon is that um uh, the, earlier this year in april uh the fda issued a warning letter to um the company uh redux beverages uh who produced the cocaine uh soda Right, and they said that they had to stop selling the energy drink. Um, they didn't like some health claims that were made related to one of the the product's ingredients, um, and they didn't like the fact that the beverage was marketed as a legal alternative to you know the illicit drug cocaine. Right, so so now the beverage has been removed from the market. 
they, they pulled it off. If you go to their website, it says banned by the man or something like this. Um, but, but prior to that, the, the, uh, the product received a lot of media coverage and, you know, there were all these statements from angry parents and, um, the, the guy who invented, um, the drink is, his name's James Kirby and he was quoted in an article that I read. He said something about how the beverage does not promote or glamorize drugs, right? So I thought that that was a totally weak response and that he should have replied to the press, you know, something along the lines of, what, are you kidding me? Uh, the archetypal American soda derives its name from the cocaine that it actually contained at one time. And no one's giving Coca-Cola a hard time. You know, and look, if you, if you roll up a $20 bill the long way, you can make a straw to sip our drink with. Right? <laughs> so, I mean, but yeah, they he didn't should, have he to... should have just know. amped it up and pointed out the absurdity of what they're doing, but... Uh... So, so uh, in a kind of a funny, somewhat related twist, the current Bolivian government uh, has demanded that Coca-Cola drop the name Coca from their beverage um, because the Coca plant has sort of long been held as a sacred and, uh, you know, it's a clearly an economic uh power in Bolivia where it's grown and the, their current leftist president is uh, Evo Morales um, he came into power on the, the promise of legalizing coca growing in the country so they're pissed off that there's this corporate soda giant which can exploit the good name of coca uh, in a product that doesn't actually contain any active coca alkaloids right but but coca-cola is not going to change their name I know but I think that's but, terrific because well, of the false advertising you know I think I think Bolivia right is and, really onto something here what what I thought of with with the uh, with the cocaine you know the situation with the cocaine beverage getting banned is that maybe uh, the president Morales should enlist the help of the FDA to get uh, you know to get Coca Cola to change their name <laughs> right it's, yeah it says Coca so I, so I think uh, so, we we need to get more humor into the discussion and that would be really a great way to do it. There's, there's, uh, so this beverage, this cocaine beverage, there's three versions of the drink, right? There's, there's cocaine, there's cut cocaine, and there's free cocaine, uh, which was the, the, the last one's a diet version. And I have to say that the original drink wins my award for the worst tasting energy drink ever. <laughs> it's, it's not only does it taste bad, but they've put some kind of a chemical in it, which when you drink it, it burns the back of your throat. It's, it's like battery acid on the back of your throat. So, so no one was drinking the shit for for the flavor, and uh, and no one's really drinking it for the effects because it's just caffeine, right? The only the only reason they're drinking it is to piss off their parents or to look cool or whatever. And and even if that's the case, um, you know, maybe they're going to drink one can and and you know switch to wearing uh, the t the company's t-shirts or something. So, because uh, nobody would. So, so the response that the the people who make cocaine. Uh, the beverage, uh, or who were making it, they, they came out with an, a second product called Cut Cocaine, which they advertised along something along the lines as having all the flavor but none of the burn. Right? <laughs> I, so they themselves know. They couldn't even sell their own product. They had to come out with a different version of it. I'll uh, tell you what, at least we have it here on record that John Hanna does not like cocaine. 
<laughs> Listen, uh, I tell you what what this kind of leads me to thinking of, and it's what I really thought we'd be talking about most, and uh, the time's almost out. But uh, uh, you know, the fact that the government's trying to control even uh, people's thoughts of of uh, some of the, what these substances can do uh, brings me back uh, full circle to uh, you know your mind states conferences, which are exactly the opposite about uh, helping people expand the the things that they think about. So uh, why don't you know I I've been to uh, I didn't get to your first Mind States conference here in the States, but uh, Mary C. did. So our family has been to all of your uh, U.S. conferences, and then you also had them out of the country, which uh, with one coming up. So uh, just tell us a little bit about these conferences, because uh, uh, as I've mentioned in several podcasts, that uh, this is how I've met everybody in the tribe is coming to these conferences, and that's... Uh, to me, uh, even though the speakers are a big draw, it's the audience that's the biggest draw for me. So uh, let me step out of the way and have uh, see what you think about your own conferences here. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I feel totally blessed um, as far as doing this sort of work, uh, it, uh, not particularly from a financial viewpoint in that I'm not getting rich from it, but um, I'm lucky because, you know, my, my criterion for deciding who to book as presenters at these conferences uh, which, you know, the conferences deal with kind of all means and manners of altered states of consciousness. It's, uh, it's not particularly solely focused on, uh, taking drugs to alter your consciousness, but that's a big part of it. But there's, there's other people too. Uh, you know, I've, I had, uh, Alan Snyder who does transcranial magnetic stimulation was one of the speakers. And I've had, uh, V.S. Ramachandran who's, uh, you know, a neuroscience pioneer in the, in the area of uh, synesthesia and phantom limb pain and, uh, you know, the neurological correlates for aesthetics and um, like Michael Shermer, who's uh, the editor of Skeptic Magazine. And so there's been a number of different people. Oh, Jaron Lanier is another good example who's uh, kind of considered the father of virtual reality. Um, and had uh, Deirdre Barrett, who's from Harvard and does... Um, you know, work with people's dreams. Uh, so, so there's a number of areas of altered states of consciousness that the conferences touch on. Um, but uh, I, I think what's to me what works so perfectly is such a perfect fit is that I book speakers because I'm interested in them. That's what makes me book them, and I'm lucky because a lot of other people seem to be interested in the same sort of thing that I'm interested in, right? <laughs> very so, convenient. So it, it makes it, it makes it, uh, yeah, it makes it very easy to do. So we've, we've done, we, we hold them about once a year and, um, they kind of rotate back and forth between somewhere in the Bay area or some, some foreign location. Uh, I did one in, in Jamaica and then, uh, one in Oaxaca, Mexico. And so this year, um, we're going to Costa Rica. And um, people who are interested in the conference, it's happening um, uh, June 13th through June 17th of 2007 in Costa Rica. And more information about it can be found online at uh, mindstates.org. And some of the speakers this year uh, include uh, Jonathan Ott and Mark Pesci and Sasha Ann Shulgin, um, Earth and Fire Airwid and uh, Eric Davis, and uh, one of the folks I'm really excited to have this year is the uh, apocalyptic artist uh, Joe Coleman, who's just a total trip, and people are going to be blown away by him uh, as a presenter and, and his life and his work. Um, I definitely recommend folks 
uh, do search, you know, do a Google search or something on Joe Coleman and uh, check out the kind of thing that he's doing because it's incredible. I I first saw his work uh, in real life at the H.R. Uh, Giger uh, Museum in in Switzerland last year, and it's just uh, he's incredible. His stuff's great. So, but y- you mentioned that um, you know that the speakers are great, but that it's kind of the the reason to go is for the community, and I I think that you know this kind of leads to a complaint and a comment, um, and the complaint is that I hear frequently is that the conferences are expensive, and this is particularly true uh, with with uh, the foreign events. Um, although it's like I said, it's not like I'm getting rich, and sometimes they lose money or uh, or just break even. But um, what I encourage people to do is to ask around, ask anyone who's intended uh, attended one of the events whether or not they feel like they got their money's worth. Well, let me um, let me just jump in here, John, and say that, uh, you know, as I said, that between my wife and I, we've been to all of them in this country, and uh, no question about what we've gotten our money's worth. And for the, while I haven't been one to the, one of the foreign uh, mind states conference, I've, uh, you know, as you know, been to uh, the Planque and several of the other uh, foreign conferences, and, and there's something magical about those. I know they're uh, expensive, and that's why I, I, I can't go all the time myself uh, either, but I do want to point out to anybody that's uh, just joining us for the first time here and hasn't been uh, in the psychedelic salon with us regularly, that uh, many of the lectures that we played here are from the Mind States conferences that you've so uh, generously uh, allowed us to uh, to podcast and get out, and, and so thousands of others get to hear these talks eventually. And so, uh, you know, I think that's really uh, just another instance of how you, uh, you know, do this to help the community, and it's not, uh, this isn't a big money-making deal for you by any stretch of the imagination yeah and i think you know the i think the key word in all of it is is this idea of community i mean um the way that i like to frame it is is like if if you would think of whoever the person is who's currently your best friend in the world right the person that you think of as like this is the 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 guy or the woman who's got my back in any situation who i love spending time with and you know that that person and then knowing how great that person is uh, to think if you had never met him or her, right, but I told you that I was going to introduce you to them, right? And at the same time, you'd be able to hear talks from a variety of, uh, you know, interesting individuals and, and relax for a week's vacation where, you know, everyone at a resort kind of shared your most passionate interests. You know, um, is it worth two grand? You know, if I, if I introduced you to your new best friend, I mean, I, I have met the people who are my current best friends at these events. And, and the, the folks that come to them are they're the most intelligent, you know, creative, heart-oriented, fun people that I've ever met. It's, it's this consistency. There's the people who are interested in consciousness studies um, and how the mind works are are the most vital people that you're going to come across. Um, and I, you know, I like to consider that the Mind States conferences attract what uh, I, I call the entheocognoscenti, right? Which are kind of the self-made, cutting-edge, you know, folks that are on the cutting edge of their field. Um, and, and like you said, the attendees are as interesting as the presenters. There's, you know, there's a, maybe a raw food enthusiast or computer programmers and or visionary artists, and, uh, medical doctors working with psychedelics. Um, you know, so many people in different fields that all come together uh, around this, this constellated around this shared interest uh, in consciousness. So, um, and then if you if you keep coming like like you've been doing, you know, year after year, you can reconnect with all these people, and it's just like going on a vacation with a bunch of your friends. 
So, uh, yeah, definitely community is the reason that uh, keeps me. Uh, hell, like you said at the start of our conversation, we met at a conference in, <laughs> in, uh, in Hawaii, right? It wasn't one of my conferences, but it was an incredible conference, you know, and I met uh, a number of good friends there. Yeah, I, uh, you know, where, always... where I first met Robert Venosa. Well, you know, that's that's where I met uh, Robert, uh, Robert Venosa, and that's where I met Bruce Damer, who's one of my closest friends now. Right, at, uh, right. That yeah, that's where I met and, Bruce. And Mark Pesci, that's where I met right. Mark Pesci. That's where yeah. I met him, too. And, and uh, in fact, I, I would say of all the close friends I have who I'm in touch with on a, on a regular basis throughout the year, uh, almost all of them have come from conferences, including my wife. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> right. Actually, that's that's something that I've a number of people have told me that they met their life partner at my conference, you know, and then later got married or they've been together since then. And so, you know, that's always nice to hear as well. Daniel Siebert met his wife at a conference, too. He and I both met our wives <laughs> at Palenque. So, <laughs> you know, if you're single right. and looking around, there's another reason to go to a conference. <laughs> it's <laughs> but, true. Uh, listen, yeah. I, I hate to bring this to an end, but uh, and we'll have to do this again. In fact, uh uh, I don't know if we'll, we won't get a chance before Burning Man, but maybe on the the playa we'll talk about the last conference and do a little interview there. Uh, about yeah, that sounds Costa good, Rica man. Conference and, uh, but I really appreciate your time here, John. And uh, I was going to say, on behalf of the whole community and tribe, I want to thank you for all you've uh, been doing throughout the years. And uh, you know, just uh, keep on trucking, and we'll do what we can to support you because uh, it's really important. Uh, right back at you, man. I think I think what you're doing with these podcasts is just great. And and then also, you know, all the work on the playa which I know is nuts. I mean, you're crazy. You're crazy to produce talks on the playa. Oh, but it's fabulous that you're doing it. And, 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 and you're crazy to have been a presenter to every one of them, too. <laughs> so we will all go together. Well, listen, my friend, thank you so much for this. And uh, you be well, and, and we'll be in close touch, okay? Okay. Take Thanks. care. I hope you enjoyed hearing my conversation with John and that you can begin to appreciate how much he has done for the psychedelic community. When you think about it, how many people do you know who care so much about this work that they'll do mass spectrum chromatography on some material just to check it out for the rest of us and, and to do it all on their own? No grants, no ulterior motive other than wanting to help keep our tribe safe? And that's just the tip of the John Hanna iceberg. He's been a great friend to all of us, uh, and whether or not you've had a chance to meet him yet, you've benefited from his work, I can promise you that. When I get the program notes posted for this podcast, I'll include links to all of the websites we talked about, as well as links to those Halpern Gate articles that he mentioned. Should you want to contact John directly about the upcoming Mind States conference in Costa Rica, or any other thing for that matter, just uh, send him an email to mindstates at prodigy.net and uh, it'll find its way to him. And if you're wondering whether this uh, tribe or psychedelic community we've been talking about or whatever you want to call it really exists, well, one hint I have is the fact that this podcast is reaching far and wide. To be specific, this past April, for example, podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon were downloaded by fellow saloners in 97 countries. I'm uh, going to post a list of these countries on the psychedelicsalon.org blog. And if any of you out there in cyberdelic space are from a country that isn't on that list, well, I think we'd all appreciate it if you'd leave a comment and let us know what part of this beautiful little planet you're joining us from. It really is an interesting list, by the way. 
what I did was to just gather a list of countries from which one or more podcasts of the Psychedelic Salon had been downloaded, and I just listed them alphabetically. So the next time you think you're all alone in the pursuit of more information about expansion of our normal state of awareness and the conscious evolution of our species, well, maybe you can take heart by reading out loud the names of all the places where you can find like-minded spirits. Believe it or not, there are fellow saloners in almost all of the Middle Eastern countries, essentially all of Europe, including the former Iron Curtain countries, Africa, Asia, and East Asia, virtually all of the former Soviet Union, and even faraway places, at least to me, like uh, Iceland, Bangladesh, and of course my beloved Ireland, just to name a few. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that there is a worldwide interest in the general area of psychedelic medicines, and this interest is not a frivolous one, but rather it's become a very mature human inquiry into some tools that hold great potential for our species. To me, it's a sure sign of the awakening of the newosphere. And believe me, you are not only not alone, you're in the company, the cyberdelic company, of literally millions of like-minded humans the world over. So please don't get too upset when the system doesn't change fast enough for your liking. Our mission isn't to change the system. It's far more important than that. What we have to do to survive as a species, at least from my perspective, is to change our culture. And by that I'm not suggesting we evolve some form of a global culture. What I'm trying to say is that perhaps we need to infuse whatever culture we now find ourselves in with more of the energy we experience while in a psychedelic state. And as you most likely know, that feeling is one I call Gaian, but you can also be called green. Well, I've really gone on today uh, more than I intended, especially since this program is so long already. So I guess it's uh, now confirmed that I've got my energy back. And before I forget, I want to give a plug to the Gizmo Project. That's gizmoproject.com. They're the ones whose free service I use to record my conversation with John Hanna today. In my humble opinion, they've got some really great features that you might find worth checking out. And at least on my machine, the overall quality of the recording seems a, a little bit better than what I've heard on Skype. But hey, they're both great services, and they sure beat the rates charged by the phone companies. Before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 license. And if you have any questions about that, you can click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which may be found, of course, at www.psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, you can send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. Thanks again to Chateau Hayuk for the use of your music here in the salon. And thanks again for being here. It was nice to be with you again. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. 